0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Today on Inside Politics, hope for the hostages. Negotiators say they're nearing a deal to release some of the 237 people being held captive by Hamas terrorists. Plus, President Biden turns 81 today. He's keeping it pretty low key, with the White House hoping to minimize concerns about his age as he fights for re-election. And an equal partner in everything I ever accomplished. That's how former President Jimmy Carter is remembering his wife of 77 years. Rosalind Carter died yesterday at the age of 96. Tributes are pouring in highlighting her incredible legacy as First Lady, mental health activist, and humanitarian. I'm Dana Bash, let's go Behind the Headlines and Inside Politics. We start today in the Middle East where more than two dozen newborns are now safe from war. The first group of Palestinian babies evacuated by Israeli forces from Al Shifa hospital in Gaza arrived in Egypt this morning. Dozens of ambulances helped transfer the babies to where they're now receiving medical care it comes as Israelis are trying to show the world that they value life and also what the IDF says is proof that Hamas terrorists were running operations under the exact hospital where those babies were being targeted, excuse me, were being treated. And new footage that the IDF says shows Israeli hostages taken by Hamas arriving at the hospital. CNN cannot confirm the individual's in this video or their affiliation but the timestamp on it is critical October 7th the same day of the barbaric Hamas attacks inside Israel CNN's Jeremy Diamond is covering all of these developments out of Sirot first Jeremy what can you tell us about that uh that that footage that is coming from the hospital
2: Well, that footage that the Israeli military released of that tunnel under Al Shifa Hospital is certainly the most concrete evidence that the IDF has presented so far uh, about its claims that there is a vast tunnel network below the Shifa Hospital medical complex. Uh, You can see in it what appears to be a drone going down uh, into the tunnel along a spiral staircase. And then inside that tunnel itself, you can see over several meters um, some kind of asset, whether it is uh, a robot with a camera, or perhaps an animal with the camera going down this tunnel. You can see the kind of signature uh, curved ceiling that is typical of uh, Hamas tunnels in Gaza. And then it arrives at a door, which the Israeli military says is a a, a door that they have yet to open because they fear that it may be booby-trapped. Now, what we haven't seen yet is the evidence that there is some kind of a massive underground command and control center of Hamas, but Israeli officials maintain that it does exist uh, and that eventually they will be able to provide that kind of evidence uh, down the line. Now, meanwhile, we know that negotiations are still ongoing uh, between Israel and Hamas, mediated by Qatar with the assistance of the United States on a deal to potentially free dozens of women and children being held hostage in the Gaza Strip. Um, So far, a uh, draft of a potential agreement suggests that there could be a four to five day uh, pause in fighting in exchange for the release of at least 50 hostages. But I can tell you from speaking with officials today that these negotiations are very much still ongoing. There has been a lot of optimism, of course, in the last 48 hours. But these negotiations remain extremely complex, extremely sensitive and could, of course, still unravel.
1: Thank you so much, Jeremy, appreciate that. And negotiators working to free dozens of Israeli hostages taken into Gaza on October 7th. As Jeremy was mentioning, could be close to a deal. Sources are telling CNN that senior Biden administration officials are speaking to officials from Israel and Hamas with Qatar mediating. Let's bring in CNN's Arlette Signs from the White House. Arlette, you just heard Jeremy's reporting from the region. What are you hearing from White House officials?
3: Well, Dana, optimism that the administration could be reaching a deal extends all the way to President Biden himself. Just moments ago, he told reporters out on the South Lawn that he believes they are nearing a deal to secure the release of these hostages. It comes as administration officials, uh, along with uh, the Qatari officials that they are working with, uh, have really been working around the clock and trying to secure the release of these uh, hostages. Now, as Jeremy noted, there is that draft proposal that has, proposed a potential four to five day pause in fighting in order to secure the release of about 50 hostages. That's according to sources uh, familiar with the talks. But there are still a number of details that need to be fine tuned. Uh, for instance, while Israel has pub- publicly been calling for the release of all hostages, uh, there is a-, a source who has said that Israel has presented a list of about 100 hostages that they want to see freed. So far, Hamas has simply uh, teetered around that 50 number in these talks. But there are a host of other issues, a lot, including uh, questions about how to implement this deal if one is struck. Uh, there's concern about the humanitarian aid that would be going into Gaza, how many trucks of aids that would include, how they would inspect these trucks, and how they could ensure that that aid is also going to civilians instead of Hamas fighters. But you have heard the administration in recent days have this uptick and this cautious optimism uh, while noting that there are still a number of ways uh, that this detail could potentially not come together there have been fits and starts throughout the negotiation process. And President Biden has publicly been calling for these pauses for humanitarian aid, as well as trying to get hostages out. But so far, he has resisted calls for a ceasefire, something that he again resisted over the weekend in a Washington Post op-ed where he said a ceasefire is not the way to peace. That's that would simply allow Hamas to give them time to restock and replenish their capacities uh, to continue waging this fight. But the president also used that uh, op-ed to try to make the case not just for support for Israel, but also for Ukraine as Russia continues uh, their campaign in that country. Uh, He wrote in that op-ed saying, quote, both Putin and Hamas hope to collapse broader regional stability and, and integration and take advantage of the ensuing disorder. America cannot and will not let that Happen, for our own national security interests, and for the good of the entire world. So President Biden there trying to speak at the need for American involvement, American support uh, for both Israel and Ukraine. But of course, right now, top of mind for officials here at the White House is trying to secure the release of those hostages, and there has been some optimism that that could soon happen.
1: Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's keep crossing all of our fingers and toes about that. Thank you so much, Arlette. Appreciate it. Let's bring in our panel of great reporters, Sung Min Kim of the Associated Press, CNN's Elena Treen and The Washington Post's Leanne Caldwell. How are you? Nice to see you all. Um, let's start with what we saw come out over the weekend. There was a new poll and it just kind of reinforces a, a lot of what we have been talking about with regard to President Biden and the political um, sort of conundrum that he's in. Is that a TV word? It is now <laughs> 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 that he's in with regard to his own party and how he's approaching the Israel-Hamas war. He has been pretty steadfast, really steadfast in his support for Israel's uh, right to defend itself, but to have some caution. Let's look at how Democratic voters uh, see that. Approve 51 percent, disapprove 41 percent. So he still has the majority of support, but it's Considering they're his fellow Democrats, it's not as high as maybe he would like. Let's look at the young voters now. This is what is the most stark. The question about young voters on uh, Biden's handling of the war between Israel and Hamas approve 20 percent, disapprove 70 percent. Young voters,
4: as we've talked about a lot on the show,
1: they're a very important part of his coalition for reelection.
4: Certainly. And that's why it's certainly the uh, his handling of the war, uh, the Israel Hamas war, that's led to an overall decline in his disapproval rating among young voters. If you look at the general approval rating of President Biden by people 18 to 34 in September, 46 percent approval rate among those voters for Biden, now 31 percent. That's a pretty significant drop in a demographic in just a couple of months. And certainly it's attributed to his handling of the war. The thing about Joe Biden is his staunch support of Israel is not something that's going to change. It is really ingrained in his in his political personality, his broader um, experiences and foreign policy. He talks a lot about his uh, his time meeting Golda Meir, the Mm -hmm. first uh, female Israeli prime minister. So, But you see, so that's not going to change, but you see how the White House and the president himself is really trying to emphasize the other parts of their policy towards the war in terms of emphasizing the humanitarian issues uh, at play and the careful diplomacy that they're doing. But this is a really tricky issue for the president right now. And the fact that in that op-ed, which is um, really
1: interesting that, first of all, that the president of the United States writes an (laughs) op-ed, but that in there he talked, uh, Leanne, about the, uh, the, the extremists in the West Bank, Israelis yeah. in the West Bank, uh, and threatened to, uh, t- to punish them diplomatically uh, if they continue to do that. So it, there's no question that this is something that uh, the president politically is thinking about, never mind
5: that he, I'm sure, fundamentally believes in everything that you just said and everything that he said in that op-ed. Yeah, it's really fascinating because the president has been pushed from the left on the issue of Israel and Gaza and his opening to address the violence in the West Bank among the settlers, Um, it it, it acknowledges that, as you mentioned, getting back to, well, let me say one thing on that first. And also, you're also seeing from the left, um, members of Congress who are asking for conditions to be placed on aid for israel they're going to address that when they return from the thanksgiving break and then looking more broadly at young voters specifically because it's so fascinating biden won young voters with 59 percent of the vote in 2020 against donald trump um, this these are the first numbers that we've gotten since the dissatisfaction over the israel gaza war but also when you talk to young voters it's much broader it's about um, student loans. Mm-hmm. It's about entering an economy that, where, where inflation was high and they just are feeling extremely nervous about their own situation. Well, so. let, let's dig deeper on that because in this new poll, uh, there was a matchup
1: question between Joe Biden and Donald Trump because one of the questions has been, okay, <clears throat> so a young voter um, who has voted for Joe Biden before is not really enthused about him now. The question is, is that voter going to stay home? Or is that voter going to go out and vote for the Republican, no matter who it is? So let's, this hypothetical matchup between Donald Trump and Joe Biden among young voters, look at this. I mean, it's incredibly close. It is within the margin of error. Now, we don't know in this subset what exactly the margin of error is. We haven't gotten it from NBC yet,
6: but it's close. We know that. No, exactly. I think. It's really interesting to see the erosion, as you mentioned, Leanne, among his own party. Um, And I do think that this is something I I know that just from covering Donald Trump's campaign that they're very much thinking about. um, And they're we're celebrating these poll numbers from NBC. Um, And look, I do think just in the broader context of um, his handling of foreign policy and Biden's handling of the Israel Hamas war, the fact that so many Democrats are divided is a really problematic thing from, of course, we're you know about a year out from the election, just a little under that. There's a lot that can change from now and then, but I do think that um, when even looking at Congress, the division in Congress of Democrats, it's something that's going to be difficult for him to deal with, even with his support, you know, being um, his support, you know, for Israel being very consistent, very consistent. One of the things that the president cannot change
1: is the fact that he is 81 years old. Happy birthday, Mr. <laughs> president. And this is uh, obviously feeds right into the conversation that we're having, particularly among young voters. And this is an an issue where the president is still trying to figure out how to address it. I mean, we have historical examples of people who were old for their time. Uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, among them, sort of using humor. So he tries to do that. Let's listen to some examples.
7: I've never been more optimistic about America's future than I am today. And I know I only look like I'm 30, but I've been around a long time. You okay? I want the press to know that wasn't me.
4: I mean, the last part kind of landed. Yeah, I mean, it works for what he's trying to do because you're right, you can't magically become younger. President Biden is 81 today. He will continue to be older um, and that is going to be, continue to be an issue going forward for the Biden campaign. And what I going back to young voters, I had talked to voters in the past who had participated in the A P poll, just kind of their perceptions about president biden and what you hear oftentimes when you talk to young voters is not only just kind of dissatisfaction of what hasn't been done like the student loans issue that leanne mentioned but there's an understanding that he doesn't really understand their problems just because he's of a different generation and i don't know how uh, biden erases that issue yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, and he talks a lot about how he connects with his with his
1: grandkids so maybe we'll see him leaning into that a right. little bit more as well Soon, a D.C. appeals court will determine whether the former president, Donald Trump, will have to stay quiet in his election subversion case. We're going to go live to the courthouse next. And later, remembering Rosalind Carter. Our former CNN colleague, Judy Woodruff, has covered the Carters for decades, and she's going to be here to talk about Mrs. Carter's legacy.
0: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish.
6: Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
1: Today, Donald Trump's legal team made the argument that a gag order in the federal election subversion case violates his First Amendment rights. Trump's lawyers are asking an appeals court panel to lift an order that would prevent him from publicly criticizing witnesses and prosecutors. CNN's Evan Perez is following this for us outside the courthouse. Evan, what do we hear so far?
8: Well, Dana, the hearing just wrapped up, and, and really, the Trump team faced a lot of skepticism from this three-judge panel on the idea that just because he's, he's running for office, he's a presidential candidate, that he uh, should face no restrictions in, what the things, in, the, in the sort of things that he's able to say or in the, on the campaign trail, of course, on, on his social media platforms. Uh, and he got a lot of pushback. Uh, John Sauer, the lawyer for, for, for the former president, got a lot of pushback from the judges, in partic- particular from Patricia Millett, one of the judges who heard this case. Here's her, uh, her pushback on, on his arguments.
9: First of all, I'm not shutting down everyone who speaks, we're only, this is only effect, no one's shutting down and everyone's, this is only affecting speech temporarily during a criminal trial process by someone who has been indicted as
1: a felon. So that's a different category first. So no one here is threatening the First Amendment broadly.
8: And Dana, it's clear, obviously, you know, this is a a court that does restrictions on people's speech uh, before trial all the time. A lot of defendants face restrictions on what they say. Of course, we've never had a defendant quite like Donald Trump, who's running for office, who's leading in the polls. Uh, I will say, though, the judges also had some trouble with the prosecution and the way they tried. they are trying to interpret these restrictions, the broadness of this order from the judge. The judge, especially uh, again, uh, Judge Millett had some some concerns about how broadly you can apply this to uh, the former president, given the fact that he is running for office. Dana?
1: So many unprecedented questions that are now setting precedent uh, for the future, which we'll see if we ever need those precedents in the future. Evan, thank you so much. Appreciate it. I want to bring the panel back here. Alina,
6: you cover uh,
1: the former president on the campaign trail. What are you hearing from Team Trump about this?
6: Well, look, I mean, I don't think this strategy is surprising at all. I mean, we've seen them push back heavily um, in the New York civil fraud trial uh, with the gag order there. This is their strategy. They very much think that it is Donald Trump's right to be able to speak about his cases. And part of that is they want this entire legal strategy to also be a political strategy. And they do not want to fight these legal battles in the court of law or just in Mm -hmm. the court of law, but in the court of public opinion. And by blocking... Um, some of his ability or limiting his speech uh, because of this case prevents him from doing that. So we have all of these cases Mm -hmm. and various sort of
1: tangents of these cases. This is one example going on that the former president has been able to use as a big plus Mm -hmm. in his primary fight. You still have opponents trying to chip away, figuring out how to try to chip away at his lead. One of them is Ron DeSantis, who was on with Jake yesterday on State of the Union. Let's take a look at the way he tried to swing at him.
10: I've said publicly, the presidency is not a a job for an 80-year-old. Donald Trump would actually be older on January 20th, 2025 than Biden was on January 20th, 2021. Uh, But I think it's part of a larger issue that this is not the same guy as the Trump in 2015 and 16. That Trump would show up on the debate stage. He'd barnstorm. Even if somehow I'm wrong about the election, maybe, maybe Trump can squeak in. Being a lame duck president on day one, you're not going to be able to turn this country around.
4: Father time is undefeated is not a bad line. And I also love his like, actually, he would be older than Biden was, that old guy in the Oval Office right now. And you're right. It is them trying to find any sort of which way to puncture Trump when he is standing so politically strong. It's obviously a tactic that actually the Biden campaign has taken in recent weeks with uh, with the former president, noting his mix up of where he is and the leaders of which countries and whatnot. Um, At the end of the day, I think I keep coming to this over and over. You know, no one who has had a primary lead this large has blown it to not become the nominee. And I think few of us think that he is not going to become the Republican nominee at this point, but it is really interesting to see how his challengers in the primary are figuring out how to maneuver around and try to get at his vulnerabilities yeah. without offending the man himself, without offending, especially offending his voters. Yeah,
1: yeah. I want to turn now to a dangerous phenomenon that continues to grow in the United States and around the world: raging anti-Semitism, Jew hate. Seemingly from both extremes of the political spectrum, it is increasing. On Saturday, for example, a neo-Nazi demonstration in Madison, Wisconsin, a march down the iconic State Street with people waving Nazi flags. And according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, chanting, quote, there will be blood. And on Friday, pro-Palestinian protesters at the University of Michigan occupied an administrative building. Several of them were arrested. Then at Harvard University, people gathered to chant, globalize the Intifada, a call for a global uprising against Israel and Jews. And then there's Elon Musk, the owner of X, formerly known as Twitter. He responded to a post last week that said Jewish communities push, quote, dialectical hatred against whites. He replied, quote, you have said the actual truth. I want to bring on our panel now uh, because this is something that we are not going to stop talking about. And it has been fascinating to see how people in public office, particularly candidates for president, are reacting or not reacting. We're talking about Ron DeSantis. He, again, was on with Jake on State of the Union yesterday. He was very eager to criticize the hard left, which is uh, a big part of the problem when it comes to Jewish hate, particularly at universities. But when it came to Elon Musk and what I just talked about, here's that exchange.
10: Elon has had a target on his back ever since he purchased Twitter uh, because I think he's taking it in a direction that a lot of people um, who are used to controlling the narrative don't like. I have no idea what the context is. Uh, I know Elon Musk. Uh, I've never seen him do anything. Uh, I think he's a a guy that, that, that believes in America. I've never seen him indulge in any of that. So it's surprising if that's true, but I have not seen it.
5: It's hard to even comment on that. Um, We all know what Elon Musk said last week on his social media platform. Going back, you have to remember that Elon Musk interviewed Ron DeSantis when he launched his campaign Mm. on Twitter. So they obviously do have a very good relationship. Um, But there is a left and a far left and a far right problem on this. Uh, When Donald Trump was in office, there was anti-Semitic tropes that he would... He would espouse as well. It seems like the gates have been opened very little before the war, and now they have just completely flooded, and it's seeping into our politics.
1: Elon Musk has 163 million followers on his platform. 163 million followers, if they were looking at his feed, saw that. Now, I will say that he subsequently put something out after he was, uh, he's, he's in... Deep, you know what, because advertisers are pulling back for other reasons. Uh, but he said something about uh, from the river to the sea, which is an anti-Semitic chant, full stop, uh, that when he sees that or when that that is up there, it will be policed. But he left this up there. And I'm not sure why it's hard for politicians to condemn that.
6: You know, it's so interesting to watch. You talked about his 163 million followers. A lot of them gained since he took over Twitter and a lot of them... Um, Republicans. Republicans have completely embraced Elon Musk. You've seen him come to the Hill and um, go to Republican retreats like with former Speaker Kevin McCarthy, and they've really embraced him. And I think a lot of people are afraid of alienating um, that part of the voter base of the Republican voter base that is very stringently for Elon Musk and A lot of the disgusting things that he's been saying on Twitter. And I think that's part of why you see Ron DeSantis not wanting to go after him. It's the same reason they are careful when Donald Trump says um, really inflammatory things, because they don't want to blow that up politically. And um, I think that's continuing to play out um, in the public view on Twitter.
1: Well, I think that's very astute. It's uh, we'll just leave it there. Up next. It's that time of year again. Millions of Americans are traveling for Thanksgiving, and we're gonna talk to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg on what to expect ahead of the holiday.
6: Stay with us.
9: I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them on Be My Guest, the podcast new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Americans across the country are hitting the road this week to gather with friends and family for Thanksgiving. And more travel means crowded airports and traffic on the highways. How busy and how bad will traveling be this holiday season? Well, let's ask the Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg. Thank you so much for being here, sir. You said uh, this morning that officials are anticipating that this holiday season will be one of the busiest on record. What are you anticipating when it comes to what people are gonna be doing on the road and in the skies.
11: Well, that's right. Uh, so many of us are looking forward to Thanksgiving, it means being with, uh, with family, it means being with those we love, and that means moving around and uh, getting to, to where those loved ones are. Uh, we are expecting about 2.5 million passengers a day. We think the uh, airline travel peak will be on Wednesday. Uh, and of course, a lot of people on America's roads as well. As always, our biggest focus is safety. We're asking drivers to uh, allow extra time and be extra cautious because often you're uh, you're, you're going to a relative's house, maybe down a road you don't know that well. Uh, and then uh, on the aviation side, uh, we're gonna make sure that we build on the progress that's been made in the last year and a half. Now, so far this year, we've already seen some record breaking volume in terms of some of those summer holidays. Mm-hmm. And so far, the system has hel- held up uh, quite well. Cancellations this year actually below what they were before the pandemic. We're pressing the airlines and watching closely to see if they can keep that record up.
1: Now, you talked about uh, airlines. There is, I know you know, a shortage of thousands of air traffic controllers. On Friday, the FAA announced a new hiring pipeline to try to address that. But are there even enough people raising their hands to join in that effort?
11: So we do have a lot of people, thousands and thousands, who apply to become air traffic controllers, but Mm -hmm. uh, not everybody who applies actually gets the job. For very good reasons, it is a very, very rigorous process. Mm -hmm. Uh, Part of what our new FAA administrator, Michael Whitaker, uh, has done in very swift response to some of the findings that came back from an independent review is to find more ways to get more people qualified while maintaining that high standard. That includes partnerships with uh, universities and other facilities that are in a position to contribute to and augment that training mission, along with our excellent academy in Oklahoma City. And, uh, of course, we're also looking for the budget, for the funding to do that additional hiring. One of many, many things that's riding on uh, this process going on with Congress uh, is making sure that we have the funding to hire the controllers that we need and to get them the modern equipment that they need to handle this volume, because our expectation is that that uh, record-breaking demand that we're seeing for mm-hmm. more and more passengers, more and more flights, it's only going to grow in in the years to come
1: and as we enter this holiday season mr secretary people are kind of opening up their piggy banks turning them over to see how much how much is there so let's talk about the economy president biden he's been trying to sell the american public on an economy that's good there are some data points that prove it gas prices are down inflation cooled last month but i want you to listen to what the president said about this
7: last week i acknowledge there's a disconnect between the numbers and how people feel about their place in the world right now. We can deal with the second part as well.
1: You are not only a member of the president's cabinet, you've been out there uh, selling infrastructure projects and trying to close that gap that he talked about. How do you continue to do that when it seems to be widening the gap between the numbers, the data, and how people appear to feel?
11: Well, a big part of our job, a big part of my job is to explain the good news in terms of the physical improvements that are coming to roads and bridges and tunnels and airports and ports around the country Uh, and in terms of things we're seeing with the big picture economically, uh, inflation coming back down, gas prices, as you mentioned, coming back down. I would add to that airfares becoming much more reasonable lately uh, and unemployment uh, that I don't think has stayed this low for this long in my lifetime. But that doesn't mean you can go around saying, uh, you know, everything's perfect. And we recognize that Uh, Americans have had uh, a rough few years, especially when you think about COVID and what that did to our society and uh, effects that we are still working through. You think about some of the political polarization that's going on. Uh, We're not out there saying that all of the work is done. Uh, We're out there pointing to the good work that we're doing. And what we found is uh, Americans, uh, even when they feel that uh, we've got a long way to go uh, for things to be really the way we want them in this country, agree with the steps that President Biden is leading in terms of of how to deal with it? Lowering the cost of delivering, lowering the cost of uh, of living—that is, lowering the cost of uh, prescription drugs. Uh, getting insulin down to thirty-five bucks for seniors. Uh, the, the focus on in, in, in my world on things like airline passenger protection, right. uh, as well as all that physical infrastructure. We're we're doing the right things. We got a lot more work to do.
1: Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Secretary of Transportation. Thank you so much. Have a happy Thanksgiving to you, you too, and, and your family. Appreciate Thanks it. Thanks very much. Tributes are pouring in for former First Lady Rosalind Carter. I'm going to discuss the impact that she had on America with someone who covered her since she was First Lady of Georgia.
12: I loved it. I liked it all, and Jimmy did too. And, he, and all of the time that he was president, with all of the criticisms, he thought he was doing the right thing and the best thing for our country. And we enjoyed it.
1: Former First Lady Rosalind Carter died Sunday at her home in Plains, Georgia, at the age of 96. Nicknamed the Steel Magnolia by the press, Rosalind Carter is remembered as a trusted advisor during her husband's presidency and a staunch advocate for mental health, caregiving and equality. She's also credited with helping shift the role of the First Lady to a formally recognized federal position, a move that helped revolutionize the position.
12: I think the role of women has, has changed and, and, and as the role of women has changed, the role of the first lady has changed. And I don't think we'll ever go back to have a first lady who just um, entertains and pours tea. And-
1: in his statement, President Carter remembered his wife of 77 years as, quote, my equal partner in everything I ever accomplished she gave me wise guidance and encouragement when i needed it as long as rosalind was in the world i always knew somebody loved and supported me joining me now to discuss rosalind carter's life and legacy is judy woodruff senior correspondent for the pbs news hour our former colleague here at cnn but also you covered the carters since they were in georgia
9: way back yeah You you can say the year uh i covered his second campaign for governor in 1970 and so she had had a little experience by then with him out on the campaign trail. And it was not the easiest thing for her. She was naturally shy, soft-spoken, but she developed a knack for it. And she would go anywhere, speak to any group, to talk about what her husband would do as governor, what, uh, what policies he would institute. And she carried that, that ability, that passion, that talent all the way, of course, to the White House several years later. And you said that she was...
1: Um different when she got to the White House. She was more embracing of that role.
9: She was more embracing. She realized once she got there that this was a place where she could make a difference. She could have influence. Um, You didn't naturally, uh, people didn't recognize it at the time. I think in fact, it's been greatly underappreciated. And you touched on that in in the reporting you just did, uh, Dana. But she realized that as first lady, she could move mountains, if you will. She certainly did that around mental health. She pushed the president uh, around women's rights. He went on to nominate many women uh, to, to positions in the federal government. Uh, she was involved in the Camp David Middle East she discussions. She was? Not, not in the meetings, but in a way where she was listening, taking notes That's on her own. That's fascinating. On I didn't know that. You know, being, the, being the one who was judging how people were reacting to one another. And she would give him little hints about what, you know, you might try this, you might try that. Um, and And then she broke barriers. She was the first first lady to to take on a major diplomatic mission uh, the first year he was in the White House, which was that was a trip to Latin America, Central America, South America. I visited I think seven countries. She prepared like crazy. She had this just enormous work ethic. Uh, she learned to speak a little bit of spanish mm. uh, people she went there. Dana, on this trip with people expecting very little of her, thinking, oh, this is a joke. The first lady's going to be representing the president. But she had done her homework. She ended up developing a rapport with several of these leaders. She listened carefully. They complimented her afterwards. And she took their messages, whether they were positive or negative, back to her husband.
1: Let's talk about one of the things you mentioned, Judy, which is her work on mental health and trying to destigmatize mental health when she was in the white house and beyond you had a conversation with her in 1993 when you were here
9: at cnn your area of special interest for what many years now 20 15 20, 20 years <laughs> more than 20 actually, uh, since jimmy was governor. uh has been in the area of mental health what do you think about uh, the the way they have addressed mental health care needs in this country
12: that's some some good things, um, for which I'm thankful. Mm -hmm. But I still have to say that um, I had hoped for a little bit more. (laughs) I had hoped um, to eliminate the discrimination and to treat mental illness on a par with physical illnesses.
1: I mean, I don't think we can under overstate I should I should say Mm -hmm. understate how incredibly revolutionary that was
9: it was to say
1: that in well you were talking there in the 90s but to have be, to be pushing that in the 1970s to in the equate nin- mental
9: and physical health exactly i mean that was at a time when it was still very much a taboo i mean it still is today for some people but it's it in so many ways it's come out of the closet people are now much more comfortable talking about the fact that they have a mental or an emotional illness she raised that flag very early when her husband was campaigning for governor of georgia a woman at a factory gate said, I'm a single mother, I have a child with mental illness, what will your husband do? And she said, she said words to the effect, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. I'm going to talk to my husband. And sure enough, she, she made that one of her main focuses as First Lady and of Georgia. Real,
1: and real quick, caregiving.
9: And caregiving was something that grew out of her interest in mental health. She recognized the importance of the need for people to take care, people who can't take care of themselves, both because of mental, emotional, physical uh, disabilities, intellectual, developmental disabilities. She, it came to that, uh, Dana, with a, with a passion. She started the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregiving, which to this day is one of the, the, the in the forefront of working on uh, recognizing the role of caregivers, working to increase their pay. Uh, it's It's shamefully low across America and something that Rosalind Carter, every time I spoke with her in recent years, she brought that up.
1: I'm so grateful that you came on again. It's great to have you back here on Inside Politics, the OG of Inside Politics. It's great um, to be back. It's and great. to share these, these remarkable memories of a really, uh, a, a woman who lived a tremendous life, 96 years, and had a, a really amazing partnership, 77 years.
9: She deserved all this attention and much more. Thank you, Dana.
1: Good to see you, Judy. Me too. And we'll be right back.
7: This is the 76th anniversary of this event. And I want you to know I wasn't there in the first one. I was too young to make it up. <laughs> Even though Liberty and Bell are from Minnesota, they're named for famous Liberty Bell in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. These birds have a new appreciation for the word, let freedom ring. <laughs>
1: We just told you at the beginning of the show that he tries to use humor, humor to talk about his age, particularly on his birthday. That was President Biden. More importantly, talking about Liberty and Bell, two very lucky turkeys who were just pardoned on the White House lawn. They're big ones, more than 42 pounds each. Here's the moment they were officially spared.
7: I hereby pardon Liberty and Bell. We can all give thanks to the gift that is our nation. And let's remember, we are the United States of America, and there is nothing, 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 I mean this sincerely, nothing beyond our capacity when we work together.
1: Important message heading into this Thanksgiving holiday. Thank you so much for joining Inside Politics today. CNN News Central starts after a quick break.
0: When you work, you work next level